I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Phyllis Gove. And I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your normal host, Joseph, and his amazing Technicolor dream mobsters. Are the Reservoir Dogs mobsters? Is that like a way to refer? Are they just like criminals? I, they're just they're just criminals. But I, I mean, gotta I redo broke... the joke. No. <laughs> no, no. Here's what one of my favorite things is that if our if our patrons uh, do watch the videos of these episodes, and God is, knows they watch all of them, I'm sure they do as they should. Because I mean, why else would you pay the money? But um, no, obviously not. I uh, what I do love is they can see Emily just thousand yards staring off into the distance as she comes up with her uh her introductions every week Just, well it was uh, like off the dome it was like well what's the obvious answer the obvious answer is like mr chartreuse and then i went through the lyrics i went <laughs> to the, the lyrics I went to the lyrics of Joseph and the amazing technical dream oh, coat that that's song great. where they just list all the colors and i was like what if the host and i the thing is i just always get like two degrees too complicated and uh-huh, that's how uh-huh. you know it's a good joke <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was a weird reference to the fact that today it was announced that uh, john chu is directing a uh, a joseph and the amazing you know what you know what no joke no joke i uh yeah you two should jump in at any time but i i like yesterday was on a podcast about a different musical and mentioned how there would probably never be a Joseph movie. And I conjured and you, it. You conjured it out of the wow. air. Yeah. I was and how waiting. long until that episode comes out? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Better make it soon. waiting in line at the post office with my roommate, and she turns to me and says, 
oh, they're making a Joseph the Technicolor Dreamcoat movie and uh, John Chu's directing it. And I was like, doesn't he have an entire second Wicked movie to do? <laughs> like, this is... I mean, I, I, oh, I would also say, like, I don't know that Joseph is a 2023, 2024 thing. Like, yeah. I, 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 listen, I have nothing against Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. At the same time, I feel like there's a lot of stuff in there that's going to have to be tweaked for Phil, a modern audience. Yes. Phil, yes, yes. The the Pharaoh is Elvis, and Elvis Mania is hot right now. Cast Austin Butler; he'll finally win that Oscar. Oh, It'll you're happen. right. You're right. I, I absolutely agree. Ooh, yeah. That's the got some power cast. to it. Yeah, so, absolutely. So Carson and Caroline, I uh, Emily reached out to me and was like, "You uh, you guys should come on because Emily's never seen Reservoir Dogs, which is which is which kind is of insane. Crazy. How have you not seen Reservoir Dogs? Yes. Oh, you did the thing. I did, did the thing. thing. I, uh, I I I love their podcast. How have you not seen? I've been on it once to talk about Doctor Zhivago. And then I was looking. You had never this. seen Doctor Zhivago. I had. I. I was like. I had seen pieces of it, and I was okay. like, "I'm a huge David Lean fan." Sure. That's why I was just, surprised you yeah. hadn't seen it. I just had not weird. seen it. I'd seen Ryan's daughter, but not Doctor Zhivago. <laughs> <laughs> An obvious um, mistake. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's one. That's one of those mistakes everyone makes all the time. Ryan's daughter is <laughs> like a huge one. People love. They to see. play that on yeah. TNT like Twice every a week. Day. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> um. I uh, I love I love your show, uh, and I was like, how can we get them on the show, uh, uh, my my podcast friends? And uh, I was looking through the list of movies from this year, and I was like, have I seen Reservoir Dogs? And I realized I've just seen the ear cutting scene five sure. billion times. I haven't sure. seen the rest of it, so mm-hmm. I was like, well, let's fit. Let's see what happens. Let's find out. You know, it's it is really funny that the ear cutting scene was such a big deal mm-hmm. and yet you don't see it. Mm-hmm. It's all implied violence. Yes. Um, the camera, it, it is, yeah. it is a crazy thing that like when Tarantino was sort of, you know, coming to the forefront of cinema that like the thing he was, you know, kind of tagged with was like, he's so crazy violent and then you watch this film and Pulp Fiction, and I would argue most of his movies, quite frankly, they're not really that violent. Other than, like, Hateful Eight. And yeah. and even that, so, so much of the violence, that is one of those movies that I think the violence, it, it's almost on par with something like Mortal Kombat, you know, where the violence is so frequent and sure. so exaggerated that, sure. like, yeah, it almost goes the full circle around too. The same with Django. Like all yeah, those blood yeah. squib effects are yeah. so ridiculous that it's like cartoonish. And in in both of these films, you know, you've got the samurai sequence in Pulp Fiction. All that stuff's below frame. So ultimately, what we're really talking about here is people's imaginations imagining something way worse than he's actually showing them. But we'll we'll get into all of that. But it was just sort of it's interesting, Emily, that like that would be the scene. Obviously it's iconic. I get why you would have seen it, but it also just kind of makes me laugh now because it's just sort of like, you know, a little ridiculous that it was such a taboo thing at the time. I think Tarantino's good at showing you after effects of violence so that you can fill in the gap. Like you see uh, the, Nash's head with the ear cut off and it yeah. looks like somebody shoved hamburger back into yeah. a meat grinder yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. like really disturbing so your brain yes. fills in the gap but yeah you never actually see anything and it's, yeah. it's fascinating it's pretty, it's pretty crazy 
So, um, Carson and Caroline, you obviously have this podcast um, that I hope to someday be on myself uh, for a movie that I have not seen uh, that shocks and appalls any number of people. Is um, it Ryan's Daughter? You should go on for I, Ryan's I actually Daughter. I've never seen Ryan's Daughter. There you go. Uh, <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, obviously we wanted to have you guys on to talk about this movie. Is this a movie that, I mean, obviously you guys have both seen this movie, I'm assuming? Oh, hundreds of times. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've seen it like three times. Caroline likes this movie a lot more than me. I like it a lot, but she loves it. I think I might be in your camp, Carson. But we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we we will obviously unpack all of that. But I guess my question to you guys is, uh, what is the most surprising guest movie combo you've had? Like where you're just like, I honestly can't believe this person hasn't seen this movie. Can you think of one? Titanic was pretty, in terms of guests, yeah. Titanic was pretty big. Yes, that was the one that, um, that oh, was not seen the film. Um, her name is Nicole Fegan. She's, um, she's a YouTuber and sure. I mean, by day, she's a book editor as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she came on our show about a year ago and had never seen Titanic. And that That's was like, crazy. that was one of those like white whale movies that were just like, ugh. Like we Did would she love like to it? do an episode on Titanic. Oh, she loved it. Oh yeah, loved it. Adored it. Yeah, um, <laughs> good, good. It was one it's of those Titanic. white whale movies. Yeah, and we were just like, oh, we wish we could do this, but like, there's no, there's nobody in the world who would agree to go on a film podcast who would be like, yes, I would like to talk about film who hasn't seen Titanic. <laughs> and then we found one. Also, over on our Patreon, our yeah. wonderful producer yeah. Corey, um, whom we love so dearly. Uh, it came to our attention that he had never seen a little uh, film uh, from 1977 called Star Wars, um, which when we found that out, we're like, okay, we're doing a Patreon episode yeah. on that because like we can't yeah. not. And to he be had clear, seen the other eight, yeah, films. had seen Empire, Return of the Jedi, all the prequels, all the sequels, had not seen Star Wars. That's just confusing <laughs> to me. Yeah, very I, weird. Correct. That's incredible. Uh, I mean, this, I will say, you know, this movie, Reservoir Dogs, feels like it's a, it's, I, I, I think, Emily, you would acknowledge that this is a blind spot for you. There's mm -hmm. a, you, you have, you have a handful of them in 92, for what it's worth. A, a number, yeah. A number. Well, like, I, 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 you, actually, this is not true, because I've caught up on most of the big 92 movies I did as I became Over the an years. adult. Sure. Reservoir Dogs I just never got to like I'm I'm not huge into Tarantino I like yeah. his work a lot but like I'm not somebody who like is salivating for his 10th and final movie. actually no I am because it's going to be about a film critic. it's <laughs> a film critic it's it's made for you yeah <laughs> I you know it's interesting how like I think myself probably like a lot of people this was a movie I saw after I saw Pulp Fiction um so you know that movie was such a sensation, obviously, that everyone kind of was like, where'd this guy come from? And everyone wanted to see sort of, you know, obviously his, his first film, the previous film. Um, and I was 14 when uh, Pulp Fiction came out. And so I, I probably saw Reservoir Dogs in 94. And it didn't, it didn't really knock my socks off. Like, I, 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 I think part of it was that the sensation around Pulp Fiction because it's such a pastiche of things and felt so um, electric and so fresh and new. Um, this felt like the first album from a burgeoning artist that was sort of, you know what I mean? Like it didn't have the same power. Um, and then, you know, obviously Jackie Brown comes out after Pulp Fiction. And I was also a little bit kind of at the time 18 and wanting Jackie Brown to be this, 
crackling thing and it was a meditation on getting old and uh it was just you know what i mean like it wasn't again like didn't sort of scratch the itch for me um and i i would argue that until kill Kill bill comes out which felt really exciting i just i think a lot of people at least for me was sort of like i don't really know if i get this guy um Mm. i've subsequently watched this film since and i do think it's a very good movie um and it's a lot more interesting in hindsight than I think in the moment. Um, did you guys, I mean, in, I mean, 92 or around Pulp Fiction or whenever you guys saw this, it, it, it feels, you know, very kind of budget, you know, I, I don't know. How, how did you guys feel about it? Like when it came out? Sure. So I, I love that you mentioned um that you mentioned it feels like the first album from a bridging we were artist. having this conversation literally this exact like, conversation yeah and that is like that is like high key kind of like my shit is like i find myself frequently um i always love debut albums like i think they're i think they're incredible like i love that feeling of like there are you know whatever number of artists that are making this thing that clearly are so like hungry and rabid to make something. And then like, sure. they finally get their shot. And it's just like, this is what, like, this is what like, okay. First time left to their own sure. devices. Like, this is what they're like, I have to say, I have to do, I have to make. So I always love that. And I literally said that to Carson today. I was, I was, I was like, maybe it's just debut album syndrome, but like, I love Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Um, For, for a lot of that reason. Um, well, so the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs, I was, um, it was not in 92. It was uh, quite, uh, it was a few years later, but I um, was literally like, God, probably like 13, I think. And I went on vacation with my family and we were at the beach and one day there was a hurricane, you know, like 200 miles away, but that meant that where we were, it was pouring down rain sure. at the beach. So we opened the cabinet, you know, how like all of the like little rental homes have uh-huh. just like the, the cabinet full of dad movies. Um, <laughs> I opened the cabinet and Reservoir Dogs is there. And I had probably seen Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill, mm. I would imagine, were probably the only two, because this would have been before Bastards. I hadn't seen mm. Death Proof. Um, and I hadn't seen Jackie Brown either. So this probably would have been like my third Tarantino. And I was like, oh, I know that name. I know that guy. I've seen a few of his movies. I'm a young, you know, early teens, like quote unquote, like film person. Um, and I threw it on and it was one of those things where I think because I was, I went into it like literally so blind. I knew that it was Tarantino and the box art had just like the, you know, it was the one where it was like the, the five, like. Uh, vertical lines with each of their faces in it and it blew me away (laughs) like I was so like to this day like I still watch this movie and I still just like remember that visceral feeling of being like 13 years old and not knowing what I was in for and just getting like it just felt like a fire hose on me well it's you know obviously Carson I want to hear your experiences with this but I I do just want to piggyback on what, what you're saying Carolyn in the sense that like He's Tarantino, at least with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction in particular, um, and I guess Jackie Brown as well. But um, they open so viscerally, right? Which is you're sort of you're you're gonna sit in a five minute talky scene of people just shooting the shit, and then an incredible, probably obscure needle drop 
comes in with some fucking amazing title card and it you're just like you're in like maybe he might be one of the greatest filmmakers at tonally pulling you in and just feeling like you're at a concert and like this is an incredible thing i said this uh on on a previous podcast but like when i saw pulp fiction my mom snuck me in i was 14 Mm. um she snuck me into the theater and that is a cool mom yeah well yeah she snuck me in uh she had seen it already and she's like you need to see this movie and i was like okay and when the the Pulp Fiction title comes on, I turned to her, I was like, I've never seen anything like this. Like it was, it blew my, you know, Spielberg loving mind at, at 14 of just like, this is what movies can be. So I imagine for you, Carolyn, seeing Reservoir Dogs and having that, you know, slow motion shot of of them all in the suits and the whatever, it's 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 pretty incredible. But, but Carson, how about you? How did it uh, yeah. come to your life? Yeah, it's actually interesting you say that. I have a, somewhat similar situation with pulp fiction actually um i'm i'm a, I'm a bit younger so I'll, I'll i'll show myself there and say when uh, uh this movie came out i was uh, not alive yet so i definitely did not see it when it came were you, out were you born after 1992 i was yes you're our so first was. you're yeah. our wow. first oh, definitely waiting. won't be our last we got oh, we well, had... then i'm the second carson's got me yeah beat because he he is he was older. born he was I... born further after 1992 but we uh we had Emma Stefanski on and she confessed that she was born like December thirtieth, nineteen ninety two. So you are our first two. Just barely beat Emma. Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, so to that Get point, Stefanski. I will say, yeah. <laughs> Get wrecked, Stefanski. Public internet beef begins. Um. So no, no, I would never. <laughs> uh, Caroline's a lover. Um, not a fighter. Um. So I was in high school. I was probably around the same age you were Phil, maybe like 13, 14. And I was just kind of starting to get interested in like, oh yeah, movies. Like what, are, what, what is this film thing? What's, what's going on with that? Um, and my mom was like, you should watch Pulp Fiction. And I was like, okay, like, what is that? She's like, it's this movie that came out when like, I was like, I believe she would have been in her early twenties when Pulp Fiction came out mm-hmm. and she was like, and I haven't seen it since then, but like we should watch. So I rewatched it with her and it was one of those. And there are several movies like this in my childhood where I was watching with my mom on the couch and multiple times, she would just kind of go to put her hand over my eyes mm-hmm. and then I would bat the hand away and I'd be like, you chose to watch this movie. This is your <laughs> fault. Like, uh, so watch Pulp Fiction, uh, similar, similar response to you, Phil, just like, wrecked me completely it was certainly it's odd we had this conversation earlier about tarantino not actually being like that violent i think that was probably the most violent movie i had seen at that in my 13 year old life um and just the violence and the profanity and the and the the snappy dialogue and the the non-linear story structure and like all this stuff was just so cool and new and fresh to me and i loved it and i was that high school kid that had the pulp fiction poster of both of them in black and white pointing the guns at the same time uh and so then later in high school django came out that blew my mind even more i watched inglorious bastards and then i think like late high school i was maybe 17 or so i watched reservoir dogs was also kind of just like yeah i don't know yeah no that's cool that's great yeah and then watched it in college was like oh my god this is the best movie that's ever been made this is incredible they're so cool and then did you watch it with me 
in college. Sorry, not to interrupt. Am I, I, did I, I spit you down and force you to rewatch it? It's entirely possible that you did. I would not <laughs> be surprised. I, I don't specifically remember it, but I would be. I would not be surprised if that was. Yeah, the that case. would that would make very much logical sense. If that's yeah, how that went down. <laughs> and then, like, basically, the like, and it's been a number of years since I've seen it now, but like watching it after college, every subsequent time, it. it it's not that I dislike it or even that I don't think it's great, but like, oh, that, that, that like me being a like straight man in college watching Reservoir Dogs thing has like so fallen away. And now I'm just like, oh yeah, it's a really good movie. It's like really groundbreaking. It's very cool. It's, you know, um, and I like it's, it and I love a lot of it, but it's not my favorite Tarantino by like a wide stretch. Well, it's really- yes, please. I'm like, sorry. I watched this last night. Uh, that was my experience of it. Uh, yeah. Actually, I, I, when Pulp Fiction came out, obviously mm-hmm. I was very t- dialed into the movie conversation. But it, A, it did not play anywhere near me because I grew up in rural South Dakota. And B, I was not going to be allowed to watch it. So my primary experience of Tarantino for a long time was resenting that he was the chief competition to Forrest Gump, which was my favorite movie of 1994 at the time. Oh, my gosh. Ooh. Is it still and your then, favorite movie of 1994? Oh, God, no. My, I, I, I mean, I think, honestly, uh, Pulp Fiction is kind of a, a weird masterpiece. And, like, it's probably my – this is a very basic answer, but it's probably my favorite Tarantino. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, like now I've, that was the first one I saw. And then I saw, you know, all his others and somehow never circled back to this. I think because, I think because I just had this idea in my head that it was like kind of a budget version of Pulp Fiction, which it kind of is, but also like, you know, Pulp Fiction's a great fucking movie. So yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. So Kenny and I, uh, on podcasts, like it's 1999 covered, uh, following the, the first Chris Nolan film. Um, which kind of felt similar to me. You know what I mean? Where you're kind of seeing, and forget, forgive me for this being, you know, maybe a little bit patronizing, but like, it feels like a baby version of these filmmakers, right? Where they're sort of like, they're figuring out uh, what they want to say. But the irony, of course, is that everything they want to say actually is baked into the first movie they've ever made. Like everything is kind of in its own way, a spin on the first thing that they did. Um, and, and I think that, you know, more money, bigger casts, like the, the canvas gets bigger, but thematically, maybe not necessarily a, a lot more to say. Um, and I don't say that in a judgmental way. I mean, I love Chris Nolan and, and I, and I love a lot of Tarantino's films. Um, but this does feel a little bit like, you know, Pope Fiction is when he grew up a little bit, he was given a big, ch- bigger check. He was able to kind of, you know, do more of the things that he wanted to say with Reservoir Dogs. I'll say watching this again last night, um, what really hit me was just this, I mean, it's, there's so much dude energy in this movie. It's, it's like, it's rough. It's just like, just like, God, can there be a woman, just one woman that has a line? It's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a rough sausage party. It's too much for me. There isn't one, right? There aren't any. There are no speaking female. There's one. There's there's the woman who shoots Tim Roth. Yeah, she just kind of goes, uh. Oh, no, yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's incredible. I love Tim Roth's accent in this movie. (laughs) It's real. It's it's maybe my favorite character in the movie is Tim Roth's accent. (laughs) It's great. It's great. Um, But, like, listen, I don't think that, that, I, I would actually argue that Tarantino's female characters in his oeuvre, he's got some 
really great ones. I mean, I think that Jackie Brown is a great female character. I, I, I wouldn't say that Mia Wallace has a ton. To, she's, I mean, she's cool as shit in Pulp Fiction, but I don't know that she has a lot of agency or depth to her necessarily. Um, and I think the bride is an amazing role. Like, I think he's written some great female characters. I think, I think Tarantino, for Tarantino, iconography and depth are kind of the same thing. If yes. he can create a character who is instantly recognizable through yeah. visuals alone, he has kind of done like the work for what his vision is. Yeah. Um, I kind of think of, I think there are certain artists who are simultaneously creating examples of their medium and also like critiquing their medium and like i think of tarantino as a film critic filmmaker like he's he's very much using movies his movies to um, appreciate other movies he loves to correct things that he gaps he finds in in certain forms of film storytelling um i think of him sort of similarly to um james murphy the lcd sound system sure, guy sure. and um dan Harmon. you know i feel like they're such students of their media that they are simultaneously creating new things within it and off acting as critics for everything that's come before yeah and i mean one thing one thing that i would say too is like Philip, I hear what you're saying about like, oh, could there be one woman? Like, it's such a sausage fest. Like, oh my gosh. And you're not wrong. But also, my my only counter to that is like, these dudes all suck. Like, yes. like it's yes. a great yeah. movie. But yes. like, these guys suck. So yeah. like, I'm not sitting here being like, oh, wow, I really wish there was like some female representation in there. Because like, I, I, I don't feel myself drawn to like, oh man, oh, I wish, like, I wish there was a woman who was as cool as Mr. Pink. I'm like, yo, Mr. Pink sucks. Yeah. And I love watching him like get shit on for this entire time and just be a, a be a little asshole mm -hmm. that like is, it's fun to like watch him. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, but it doesn't really bother me because I also think like, oh, sure. I also think too, like obviously, like masculinity is a lot of what uh, these characters are are riffing on. I think yes. so. Yeah, I, I hear you, but like it, I don't know. I I don't really have that feeling watching it. I, I, I hear you, and I, I don't. I don't mean to. I guess to piggyback on what you're saying, I think there's there's something to be said for the fact that these uh, these guys wouldn't know what to do with a woman either. And, and, do you know what I mean? Like, they're, they're you so. Do you don't think they'd show a woman a good time? You don't think they'd I take her out for like drinks I and maybe do a movie? Not. Which I think is also probably, perhaps, Carolyn, part of the point too, right? Like, I think that mm -hmm. if you did put a woman in the mix of all of this in any real way, because they're all like the lady doth protest too much. Is this entire movie is just all these dudes desperately trying to convey like how fucking cool they are, and it's it, it, so there is a lot of that like performative quality going on. Like they all suck to your point, and I also feel like you know Mr. Pink's speech about the waitress at the beginning, or you know even just I mean, and and I can't wait to hear uh, Emily how you rate this on your queer phobic uh, scale at the end of this movie. Because I do think there's just so much um, hostile masculinity, right? Like they're all yeah. so desperate to seem masculine. Oh yeah, that it's that it almost makes you just go, Jesus Christ, guys! Like just calm the fuck down. There's so I I, I one of the one of the things I struggled with in this movie is that there's a fair amount of 
racial slurs in it. Let's just, let's put that out there. Yeah. And like, I always forget that early Tarantino, especially he's had it throughout his career. He's had many, uh, he's had many um, contretemps with, uh, with fucking Spike Lee. And oh yeah. Various other people about this. And like Reservoir Dogs is, is I had never seen it. So I was like, Oh, right. You know, Tarantino does this like Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, some of these others, I'd seen them long enough ago that now they're just sort of lodged in my brain. And like, this is an unfortunate effect of me being an extremely white person, but like, I kind of, you know, they get grandfathered into some weird thing where I'm like, well, it was the time or whatever, but this like reminded me that Tarantino just sort of uses that language visually. And I'm not going to excuse that. Cause I don't, I, I really do sort of lean more toward the Spike Lee position on this, but he's clearly using that sort of language to paint a certain picture of some of these characters. Mm-hmm. I just think there was maybe another way to do it. It is interesting to your point that he's using this word to connote how terrible these people are, sort yeah. of. But it also kind of like I remember the big the the big detente with him and Spike Lee was around Jackie Brown, if I'm not mistaken. And I yeah. believe it was Samuel Jackson's character who was using it a lot. And, and Spike Lee was like, you're a white guy, Tarantino. You don't get to use this word, which is yeah. understandable. I mean, and I they, like if you look at the history of, of using the N word in yeah. film and television, it starts to become verboten in the late eighties. So this is still on the tail end of when like people are, are saying, you know, this should never be used outside of very specific contexts. Yeah. So like I, you know, now to me it feels radioactive in a way that back then it felt radioactive but like not you know not as not a no-go zone in some weird way it was like a thing you could do to make somebody seem shitty and now you just wouldn't you wouldn't do that you'd do something else i i i also just wanted to to say something just to rewind very quickly about when we were talking about sort of tarantino as film scholar if you will i think that there's and this was something that was kind of kicked around when uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, um, which was a film that when it first came out, I kind of really couldn't get on its on its wavelength and subsequently have. But it, I, I, and I think part of it was because it was kind of the second time round that he's used revisionist history, right, where he's mm-hmm. decided to change this thing that's happened in real life. And and I can't uh, forgive me. I can't remember who the first person I read stated this, but the idea that Tarantino sees film as so powerful, it can change history. And I think that there's something really lovely about that notion. And it comes back to sort of what you're talking about in terms of this revisionist history of the way that he sort of sees his films and how he's sort of recontextualizing other people's work, you know, even even yeah. to go as far as and this is a you know whatever but in 2012 he was interviewed and he actually considered making his last film be a remake of Reservoir Dogs which i think is he's not going to do that but that is to me the ultimate like that is Tarantino fully going back up his own ass and, re- and literally revising his own work he should just do a Reservoir Dogs special edition and fix some of the special effects <laughs> and like insert like a digital character. Some hologram version. Yeah. <laughs> but the, I will say one other thing about, because I think this does speak to what you're, what you're talking about, um, Emily, is uh, February 2012, uh, Jason Reitman does a, uh, one of his live reads of Reservoir Dogs. 
uh, with an all black cast. So he inverted it entirely. Um, he had Lawrence Fishburne, Terrence Howard, Anthony Mackie, Cuba Gooding Jr., Ty McBride, uh, Anthony Anderson, Common, and then Patton Oswalt played the mentor cop, the black mentor cop, and flipped that around. Um, which, and, and then critic Elvis Mitchell suggested that Reitman's version of the script was taking the Sorkin show back to its roots since the characters all sound like black dudes. And I do think there is something there. Like, if, if Tarantino decides to do an all black version of Reservoir Dogs, I actually think it might actually be incredible. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's, but it's also like, do I want Quentin Tarantino to do that? Just yeah. in terms of like, <laughs> yeah, do no, I yeah. want him to be a, per- a person speaking to the black experience? No. And also I right. just want Quentin Tarantino to like make new shit. You know, if he's going to make course, one more movie. Yeah. yeah let's, let's, yeah. let's have it be about Pauline. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we continue, I want to give just a little bit of context for our listeners. Um, uh, Reservoir Dogs synopsis. Uh, six criminals with pseudonyms and each strangers to one another are hired to carry out a robbery. The heist, is ambushed by police and the gang are forced to shoot their way out at their warehouse rendezvous the survivors realizing they were set up try to find the traitor in their midst reservoir dogs opened on october 9th 1992 against under siege the last of the mohicans and of course the mighty ducks it would go on to (laughs) it would go on to make 2.9 million dollars on a 1.2 million dollar budget it has 90% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 94% from audiences. Ebert, however, gave the film two and a half stars and said, now that we know Quentin Tarantino can make a movie like Reservoir Dogs, it's time for him to move on and make a better one. This film... Reservoir Dogs 2. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. More, more dogs. More dogs. Uh, th- <laughs> this film, the first from an obviously talented writer-director, is an exercise in style. The movie feels like it's going to be terrific, but Tarantino's script doesn't have as much curiosity about these guys. It has an idea and trusts the idea to drive the plot. I liked what I saw, but I wanted more. I know the story behind the movie. Tarantino promoted the project from scratch on talent and nerve, and I think as a, and I think it's quite an achievement for a first-timer. It was made on low budget, but the part that needs work doesn't cost money. It's the screenplay. Having created the characters and fashioned the outline, Tarantino doesn't do much with the characters except let them talk too much, especially when they should be unconscious from shock and a loss of blood. This 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 reminds me of I turned in a, a paper in my history class my freshman uh-huh. year of college, and I got a C minus, and the professor wrote on it, "You can do so much better." <laughs> Like, like objectively, it was like an okay paper. He was like, Uh this, for a lot of other students, this would be good, but you fucking disappoint me. It's, you you know what it is? And I don't know if if you've ever, if this has been, this is like a a writer's room thing, but Mm -hmm. they'll put CBB next to a joke. Mm -hmm. Could be better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could be better. And and it just feels like that whole review by Ebert was just CBB. (laughs) <laughs> and like he he's one of the early big champions of pulp fiction so clearly like yeah. he meant what he said but yeah that's uh yeah I, I, that that's well, like wow. not even a bad review it's just kind of a brutal review and it's all yeah well and it's kind of hysterical because i mean like we've all kind of mentioned like it does feel like an unrefined version of what he would go on to do so it's not that like either it's like necessarily off base there but it does kind of sound like tarantino's response to that kind of feels like you know, I hate that I'm about to make an office reference, but I am when Pam's like, stop dating my mom. And Michael Scott's like, I'm going to date her even harder now. It's like, <laughs> it's that thing of like, you know, Ebert's like, here's all the things that like should be addressed in this movie. And Tarantino says like, fuck you, I'm doing it. I'm going to do it three times as much. Yeah. And the film is yeah. going to be two hours and 45 minutes instead of one hour and 45 minutes. But and I- everybody just goes, oh, good point. That's great. A hundred percent. 
but don't he just you made think that he, that he definitely like he there's no question he learned a shit ton between these two films right or at the very least he was given more money and more rope to be able to execute what he potentially would have done with reservoir dogs if he had more money like he's he's talked a lot about how like would have shown the heist yeah because i didn't have money like there's just things that you know might have been there otherwise there would have been the gimp in reservoir dogs that would have that was the character he really wanted to get in there and he just ah, didn't have the money for the suit could, couldn't, couldn't make afford the ball no. gag no no yeah yeah i but I, see I, that, that is oh go, go ahead. ahead sorry well i was just gonna say i think it's funny that his thing is like oh i wish i could have shown the heist because i mean like that's one of the one of the most iconic things about this film and one of the things yeah. people kind of like say is yeah. yeah quote unquote ingenious <laughs> uh is that like you don't see any of that like mm. that's kind of the brilliance is you get the whole like you know, you get the whole breakfast scene of them, you know, like peacocking around, showing how tough and cool and interesting they are. And then like, you know, they do the slow-mo walk, like we're going to go like get business done, smash cut to Tim Roth bleeding out in the back of a car. Like, mm-hmm. like that is maybe the best cut in the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. The first, the first 30 minutes of this thing, I was like, this is fucking amazing. And then I kind of like, I kind of drifted away from it, but I kept thinking this movie's really well directed. And it felt like such a weird thing to think about a Tarantino movie. I'm going to make a substantive point, but I can't stop thinking about how to remake this movie. And I think (laughs) that what we need to do is Uh we need to get Tarantino hooked up with illumination entertainment of the minions and Mario (laughs) brothers movies. And they need to make reservoir dogs, a computer animated film. I can already see the trailer. It's the little minion holding the illumination mm-hmm. uh, logo. And then you hear who let the dogs out and just like a bunch of like dogs burst out. And this is oh, from so are the they vision. Anthropomorphized and they're literally dogs? dogs. They are. Yes, they're dogs, but they're voiced <laughs> by all the same actors, whoever's still alive. And like, you know, yeah, some of them and are, then, yeah. and then, but they are like, they're walking on, on their hind legs. It's just as violent as this walking movie. It's got the same language, but like it's it's all it is is it's computer animated and it has the Baja Man song as the only song that plays in the whole movie. Like every time there's a needle <laughs> That's drop, the ear cutting let, scene. Yeah, it, it's the and the slow-mo the walk. Yeah. And the end credit song. I also it needs to be said for our listeners that behind Emily right now, speaking oh. of animated versions of Reservoir Dogs, is sketches from the video game. For Reservoir Dogs, which I had no idea existed. Um, I didn't they, they don't in any way look like any of the characters from the movie. I've been obsessed I... with that. I've been staring at Emily's <laughs> screen trying to figure out, wait, who's with supposed who? to be Steve Buscemi? <laughs> like, I... The only actor who came back was Madsen. Madsen was oh, like, yeah, I'll do a voice sure. in a video game. Everybody sure. else is like uh, someone else. Yeah, um, That's the same year they had the Sopranos video game come out. 2006 is a year for weird video game adaptations. Yeah. Um, I, I all right. So I'm going I'm to make yeah. an actual point please, here now, please. which is in, I feel like this is the first movie in a long string of films in the 90s that are like, we're going to use the aesthetics of American independent film to tell the story that happens around what you'd normally see the movie about. And this movie has, you know, violence and excitement and things like that, but it is not showing you the things they don't have the budget to do. Mm-hmm. And like, that's this revolutionary thing. And now we're in this space where when someone does that, we're like, well, that's done to death. And what we're like much more impressed by is like a, like a Jeremy Saunier who can like do the thing mm-hmm. for a cheap 
you know, budget and like be impressive in terms of what he can pull off under that, that, that level. But like, I, I joked in my letterboxd review of this, that I found it highly derivative of every American independent <laughs> film made after it. Um, and, <laughs> and uh, I mean, like this, this is, this is the movie that like shows you cause the first, Tarantino makes this this aborted movie that he never finishes called My Best Friend's Birthday in 1987, which you can't see. He claims he has claimed variously over the years that it was it's he's lost all of it. So he'll never finish it or that it's like lives in his garage and he never wants anyone to see it. He said all these different things, but he made like half of it and then was like, I'm you know, we're not going to do any more of this. And that's a very traditional American indie film. It's like characters who just kind of have lo-fi grungy conversations from the description of it. I haven't seen right. it. Then this is like, we're going to take that energy. We're going to put it in a genre context and we're going to cut it around the stuff we don't have money for. And that like invents a whole genre of movie that we still have. Like, yeah, this is probably the most influential movie of 92. Probably. It, it, yes. I do think there's something very fitting that unforgiven and this movie come out in the same year, right? That there's mm-hmm. sort of this, you know, Unforgiven is the end of something and Reservoir Dogs is the beginning of something. Um, so there is definitely a yin and yang going on there. But, um, you know, to your point, Emily, I, I, I was watching this movie yesterday thinking to myself, like, I know it's not the first movie to do this, mm-hmm. but Fractured Narrative started here, it feels like, right? This mm-hmm. was the moment when people were like, oh, wait a fucking second. I can jump around and I can skip parts that I don't, really want to show or talk about because you know whatever um and i can keep people on edge by jumping around in the timeline so they don't know what's coming and they don't like you know reveals because of fractured narrative thing which which is something that he does again a couple times but but sort of weaponizes it in very sort of surgical specific ways whereas this film feels obviously by the production nature and the budget that's what's kind of forcing him to do it but to your point Emily like it's crazy to think about how many movies do this after this it's like it's bonkers like no and like nobody does it as well as Tarantino there's some people do I that's I shouldn't make that huge of a statement but so many people don't do it with intention. They just do it because Tarantino did it. And I, I think always, he, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I was. I, I think a lot about it. Y'all seen the Doug Lyman movie Go? Yes. Yeah. 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 Would you write it for swingers? I always remember. Baby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That would have been the. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, but I remember when I was like in, I think high school too. My dad was like, "Oh, he loves this movie. Just loves Go." And he's like, "You gotta watch Go." And he was. I was like, "What is it about?" And he's like, "He just told me. He's like, oh, it's like a." a bunch of different stories and they're all kind of swimming around each other. And then they all like come together at the end. It's like a, like a Pulp Fiction thing, like a Tarantino thing. And like, I always think, and my dad's not like a, a film lover by any, any stretch, but like that being the thing that he associates with Tarantino, like that is that fracture narrative thing is, is Tarantino to him. Yeah. And, and he I used mean, to it, a lot of people. Sorry, Caroline, I didn't mm, mean to cut you off. Well, I was just going to say, yeah. And like, not only is that the thing that like, um, that Tarantino is known for, but like also that it makes its way, like you said, Carson, like you're like somebody like your dad knows 
that that it's not even just like oh tarantino's known for that it's like people who don't even like know like you know couldn't sit there and pontificate for two hours a week about movies like the four of us can like would know oh here's a nice touchstone it's tarantino he's the one who does that my dad keeps saying he he tells me this nearly every time i see him he's like yeah i keep wanting to listen to your podcast you just you got to do a movie i've seen (laughs) (laughs) you should have him on you should just be like hey It, that would be a very oh that'd be very interesting maybe for patreon one day who knows i i do for v ferrari with my dad he loves that movie <laughs> big car guy i do think you know obviously everyone kind of gives him all the credit in the world for this obviously uh kurosawa's rashomon is probably the first movie that actually does this um and and you know rashomon is the gold standard i would say in terms of perspective and and you know showing it from different perspectives and and what those reveals can be from other people's eyes but but i do think that he he injects it with so much electricity in this film you know you you mentioned that smash cut to tim roth in the back of the car bleeding and even just you can hear him bleeding no pun intended into the music before you actually see him so like you're hearing his grunting and his screaming and you're just like what the fuck is going on as uh, before we're thrown into the back of the car but i and and i'm curious as to what you guys think of this and emily very much so i'm curious on your thoughts but like the idea of in media res is something that has been fully weaponized by studios and networks and what have you as someone who's developed ideas they desperately want you to start in the middle of action so that people feel invested or at like want to know how they got there and then inevitably you do the 24 hours 36 weeks whatever it is earlier and find out how you got there i don't have a problem with that so much because honestly like if it gets people hooked into the story it gets people hooked into the story is that do you guys have is that a a bee in your bonnet is you know i feel that definitely i mean i was thinking about television a lot watching this movie uh mm-hmm. for the last time for this podcast because partially just because it seems like this kind of story not just something with this low low of a budget but something where so much of this movie is just guys in rooms talking you know just talking about stuff and just letting things unfold feels like it is fully the realm of television now Mm -hmm. it's it's really difficult to think of like a big movie coming out that everybody talked even even something like low budget that came out of a festival or whatever people talking about oh this movie it's like there's like three gunshots but otherwise it's mostly just dudes in rooms yelling at each other um but also i was thinking a lot about the media res thing it's like even a lot of big action movies kind of do this now like a lot of marvel movie marvel movies have this problem where they it, I feel like the Marvel movie problem used to be like, oh, they don't have third acts. They don't ever really end strong. And it has so become every new Marvel movie I see. I'm like, I need what is the first act of this freaking movie? Especially yeah. if it's not a sequel to something else, you know, like I'm trying to think of what the what like, oh, like Shang-Chi does that where it's like, well, let's not show how we got here. Let's just start them fully formed, you know, and doing that in Meteor Res thing. It's annoying in that respect it is because it makes you feel like you've missed something yeah more more times than not with these marvel films they're all kind of connected to one another Mm. so you do feel like you've kind of missed something but emily do you have a what are your thoughts on in media res i think i think there was a period about god it's almost 20 years ago at this point i'm old it feels like every tv critic was complaining about it because Mm -hmm. every tv show was doing in media res like every other episode 
J.J. Abrams shows especially, like Alias, every other episode a couple times there. It was just like, well, here we are. Here we, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here we are, and this is the thing that's happening. Here it is 36 hours earlier. And what that's sort of evolved to in television is, I've been watching a lot of Lost, so I'm thinking about this, but Lost will do a thing where they cliffhang some characters, and then you don't see them for like two, three episodes. And you're like, what's up with them? And then they, you catch up. And like all of television does that now. But it feels to me like that's what, in media res, which comes from this kind of fractured story, that feels like that's what that evolved into. Yeah. And that's a thing that is very fitting for television. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like stuff like Reservoir Dogs is now largely on tv and i think it is the worst off for it because i think tv is not the right medium for it in most ways i agree i so i'm curious go around the horn here but what was what's your favorite performance in this movie in tim roth's accent work is incredible (laughs) (laughs) i already said it but i do i love it i love i you said it the you you hear him bleeding out in the back of the car as it goes into the music i think his screams Every time he makes a little whiny scream in this movie, it is it is both so painful and so scary and also just kind of blissful and funny in a way. Like, it contains every emotion for me every time I hear him whingingly scream. Maybe maybe Roth, then. I really like Roth in this movie. What about you, Caroline? Yeah, I think it's Roth for me, too. I mean, I... I think about, like, there are moments that I think about where he spends the entire first diner scene, like, not talking, just listening, doesn't say a word until, like, towards the very end and goes, he's convinced, he let me take my dollar back. And, like, so there's that version of Roth. There's laying in the pool of blood Roth. There's him rehearsing his, um, like, him rehearsing his story with uh, the other cop, that version, and then just, like, the performance he gives for like the back half of the film when he reveals to Nash that he is indeed the cop and like the the moment from this film that I can never get out of my head is when Nash is just like he fucking cut my ear off I'm deformed now fucking look at me and he just looks in the eye and says I'm fucking dying dying (laughs) he's just just like he oh my god it's so good and then uh, at the end as well when he has the uh when he says to um oh god the main Harvey the main guy his name I'm yeah no 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 the 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 boss of them all but he's just oh, like joe? I don't have joe a, yeah joe yeah he's like i don't have the slightest goddamn idea what you're talking about and it's just it is just so in a film where everyone but I tell towards the end is doing their best to be like cool and disaffected and unconnected and that you just have like very much a feral Tim Roth yeah. going for over half the film it's I mean it's my favorite thing it is it is my favorite part of the film I would say yeah Emily I mean Tim Roth is an obvious answer because I feel like he is just that good I want to I want to shout out Stephen Wright as the DJ like sure. that's yeah. a great performance <laughs> I think just just for variety's sake, I do think Mike, I do think um, Michael Madsen is giving just like there's a menace to him that's sort of, and it's not even like directly menacing. It's like kind of oozy menacing. Like he's like on the edges of this story, just sort of oozing malevolence. And you're like, okay. And when he takes over and starts dancing and and you know cuts the guy's ear off, like there's a reason people think they've seen that ear be sliced off and it's because he's so terrifying in that moment and yeah yeah i think i think he's great um but i I mean tim roth is hard to pick against so i'm i'm 
also going to throw a different name in there, but I actually think that Steve Buscemi might be my favorite performance in this film. I, I know that that's kind of weird, but I'll just say that watching this um, again, I was really taken with, with, first of all, and maybe this is a somewhat of a hot take, I think he's kind of hot in this movie, guys. <laughs> like, there is something yeah, I've about I've heard that him. before. I've heard people say that. I don't think it's that hot of a take. It's, But I just mean in the sense that, like, it's he's never really played anything like this again. He's quite menacing, but he's also a bit of a weasel. Um, I, I think that his role in Fargo is a bit of a take on this, but it's like the most inept version of it, obviously. Greasier. Greasier in Fargo. Greasier. And, yeah. yeah. But, like, his eyes are so blue in this movie. Like, like, they're so piercing. I don't ever feel as though they've ever been used as efficiently as they are in this. Um, he just feels like... I would argue he might be the one that I buy the most as a criminal, if that makes any sense. Like there's a mm-hmm. groundedness and a, and a, does that make sense, Emily? You, Des- you despite that, I love how he still has the, how do you do fellow kids meme energy in this movie? Yes, yes. Like he's, <laughs> there's sure. something about him where he's like, he's trying, he, he, he works so well as a criminal. You're right. He, you buy him as a criminal and yet it feels like he doesn't buy himself as one. Yes. So he has yes. to like keep proving himself. I, that's, it's that's the Steve Buscemi magic right there. And, Keeps and yelling think, like, God damn it, we're professionals. Aren't we professionals here? <laughs> <laughs> but there's even like, you know, this the, the, what I alluded to earlier, but the speech he gives about not tipping hmm. is a total like dog shit, terrible person thing to say, right? And he makes it sort of palatable to some degree. I don't agree with him, obviously, in terms of his ethos on not tipping but i do think that like you're watching it's like yeah i kind of think this is a real guy yeah when when he has the when we make we re, when we remake this when we were nation entertainment yeah. uh there's gonna be a segment where the buscemi dog uh talks about there should be no tipping and then he posts about it on twitter and there's just gonna be 15 minutes of twitter discourse on tipping <sighs> That's how we're going to fill out some of the some of the gaps in this we're gonna movie. We're going to pad this movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I just I, I think that that Buscemi's speech with Harvey Keitel, which is sort of I guess in the first like twenty minutes, half hour of the movie, um, which really kind of it's when the movie kind of slows down a little bit, and you're really starting to see these two guys really trying to kind of figure out the machinations of what's going on. Um, I also just think, like, again, the smash cut to Buscemi running, the energy that you get with that camera of him running away from these cops. The fact that they couldn't, I just love this, but they couldn't, for production purposes, they couldn't um, control the traffic lights. So they could only do, like, Buscemi literally could only get in that car and drive away when it was a green light. So, like, they literally had to, like, time it so that they like just things like that where you're just like this is so bootstraps like it's amazing it's great yeah but yeah i mean i i i I do kind of want to talk for just a very quick second about the the sort of production of this movie to a certain degree um tarantino worked at a video store called video archives in manhattan beach california which is why his podcast is named video archives um and he had planned to shoot a film with his friends in a budget of thirty thousand dollars 16 millimeter black and white format that was what this was originally going to be uh his producer lawrence bender gave the script to his acting teacher whose wife gave the script to harvey keitel harvey keitel loved the script co-signs on as a producer uh helps find the funding they raised uh, 1.5 million dollars to make the film um some interesting casting stuff that the almost what could have been's 
John Cryer was Mr. Pink and backed out at the last moment. Hell yeah. <laughs> kind of an interesting that's, thing. Like, yeah, that's fun. Kind of would have been yeah. great. <laughs> he's kind of slight in the same way that Buscemi is right? physically. He's kind of got that. Yeah. I think he would well, have been and cool. Like, and you have to, I mean, you have to imagine that that's literally like a, that's literally a bit, right? Like John Cryer from Pretty, Pretty in Pink being Mr. Right. Like clearly that's it a, feels a like, Tarantino right? bit, right? Yeah. yeah. And apparently Clooney read for the part as well, which doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. Um, I could see Clooney as, I don't even know, maybe, I mean, this is a young 92 Clooney, so I don't know, but like, I, I don't know that he could pull off any. Yeah, of I feel like Clooney now is, is Keitel, yeah. right? But like back then, right. he probably, probably too young. I, right. think, he... I think he could have been nice guy, Eddie. I think there's an yes, energy yes, yes. that he should have brought to that. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Nice guy. I mean, so speaking of, of nice guy, Eddie, uh, apparently the budget was so low, they had to bring their own costumes. So like none of this was costumed. And Chris Penn's, tra- like, it's just Chris Penn's tracksuit. He just like showed up. Just that's like, that's nice guy. Eddie's outfit. It, it's hilarious. Given that I think the first time you see him in the diner, him wearing that tracksuit, you get everything you need to know yep. about this guy. You're like, oh, he's one of those. Okay. Yeah. 110%. And Chris Penn, by the way, like, really good in this movie chris penn a guy who i mean you know obviously unfortunately sadly is not with us anymore and a weird career uh i probably first noticed him in footloose if i'm being completely honest yeah um yeah. and does does not seem like the same person <laughs> ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 ready to get 30 ready to get 20 20 20 ready to get 20 20 ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I, not one bit uh so now that now that qt is in the podcast game with, yes. with video archive uh-huh. we should get him on the show phil what should what should we have him on to talk should, about anything he wants emily my but... pitch is always beethoven i feel like he'll have yeah, i think he'd be great for beethoven yeah I, I i truth be told uh love to hear his take on death becomes her yeah uh listen listen <laughs> quentin if you're listening we raise the red lantern currently unclaimed come i i do feel like he'd have great currently unclaimed yeah, I yeah, feel like he'd true. have great takes. Yeah, I think he'd have lots of great takes. Uh, so um, I, it should also be said, um, the movie opens uh, notoriously, I guess, if you will, with a Tarantino expounding about Madonna's song "Like a Virgin," uh, claiming you can watch it um, about <laughs> you know uh, how much I get. Whatever. Um, Bill, but do, I do, Bill love- do you want me to say it? You want me to sure, say. sure, please, please, Emily. 
Tarantino is talking about, um, so within the film, Mr. Brown is discussing the song Like a Virgin by Madonna. And the popular interpretation of Like a Virgin is that the, the, the man who Madonna is singing to is making her feel so in love and so the rush of new love that she feels like a virgin. What Mr. Brown posits instead is that what Madonna is singing about is that the man that she's singing to has a penis that is so large that uh, she feels, you know, uh, renewed vigor from that. She feels the pain again. And needless to say, this is a misogynistic thing to suggest. And I'm going to say that some of the guys in this movie are kind of scumbums. They're kind of a little scumbummy. They're kind of jerks. But what's great about this is that Madonna sent Tarantino uh, a copy of her album at the time, Erotica, signed and said to Quentin Tarantino, it's not about dick, it's about love, Madonna, which I think <laughs> is fantastic. Uh, I, I mean, it... <laughs> um, I, I do think that there's something kind of um, funny, I guess. We have Here's something that I don't feel people talk enough about, perhaps, which is Tarantino as actor. Um, I, I feel as though um, we had this moment where Tarantino was so ubiquitous and such a, you know, enormous zeitgeisty thing that he was kind of given the power to do ultimately anything that he wanted. And it seemed as though acting was a thing he really wanted to make happen. Um, he wrote the role of Mr. Pink for himself originally. Uh, he said the only way that he would give it to someone else is if the audition completely blew him away. Steve Buscemi's apparently did, and thus he changed it. Um, what are our thoughts on Tarantino as an actor? We well, actually talk. Sorry, Caroline, you go on. No, I mean, I yeah, think, I think we're about to where you're about to the go, same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's so funny because when I think of Tarantino as an actor, the yes. four things that come to mind are this, yes, Pulp Fiction, sure, From Dusk Till Dawn, uh-huh. and then um, Django. Even though it's just the uh-huh. bit cameo and Django, but those are four movies that he wrote and three of the four he directed um and he literally always plays other than like other than maybe Django there's an argument to be made he does have an accent in Django that's true that is true um but he always plays the like literally the shittiest person in the movie yeah like yeah like yeah. In this and yeah. um, in Dusk Till Dawn, he plays like, I mean, yeah, I mean, at least in terms of the shit that comes out of his mouth sure. on screen. And yes. same thing too in Pulp Fiction. And yep. then, I mean, obviously, Django is a film full of full of terrible people. And Calvin Candy is probably the worst person in the film, but he is playing, you know, he's playing a literal slaver yeah. in that film. So I'm very interested. I, I don't really have a like a take, like a thesis with that, but I can't help but notice that he always plays some of the most heinous people in his screenplays and why why maybe he does that. I will add on only, because I was about Please. to reference the exact same thing, only that not only is he frequently the most heinous, he's also the most annoying person in his <laughs> screenplays. That's true. Yeah. I, I mean... This yep. movie begins with him just kind of complaining, well, not complaining is not the right word, but picking apart the minutia of what he thinks a very unpleasant uh, retelling of a Madonna song is about. And everybody else in the diner just being like, okay, all right, that's enough. Be quiet, please. You know, he's just, he's just, just monologuing. Yeah. Like yeah. That. yeah. He going. has, 
he has that energy of your friend who won't shut up and he like exploits that every time he's on screen and um especially in the golden girls you know where he's an elvis <laughs> well see you brought up television so it needs to be said he did do four episodes of alias yes um uh as uh, mckenna's cole but i you know the thing that that i think of when i think of him acting uh i agree with what you guys are saying most of them are are his own things you know from dust on is basically his own thing as well so you know not directed by him but still um do you remember destiny turns on the radio guys because <laughs> that oh. movie uh that's a real movie he plays uh johnny destiny the uh, titular destiny um it is a really bad movie <laughs> that he is a significant role in um and it was the reason I remember this so specifically is because he was on the poster. It was like they promote there. To, well, not that I'm looking poster. at it right now. Oh, there was a different poster. Um, hold on. Let me see if I can find it uh, and show it to you guys. Cause it is, uh, he, they were like really going for it and saying like, is this, is this guy going to be a thing? Um, God damn it. I guess maybe that there's a, Whatever. There was a poster that came out at the time where he was the poster, the main part of the poster. And I just vividly remember this moment and thinking like, but can this guy really act? And spoiler, not really. But this is all <laughs> just a long way of saying that like, I do think it's interesting. It it, it reeks of the Michael Jordan playing baseball thing. It, it's just like, you're really good at this thing. Like you, you are, and, and you know, you're really good at it. Like, you know, you're one of the best. Why are you trying to yeah. do this other thing? Just just don't fuck around with this. But anyway, it, it is what it is. But um, I wanted to kind of w w jump through the plot a little bit. Um, I, I do think that the movie opens, as we mentioned, with them all in a diner. They're all kind of shit talking each other. Um, and it really does feel template wise like a quintessential tarantino scene the florid dialogue the camaraderie the tension that's there too where it feels like you know that a bunch of these guys are violent and you know that like violence could break out at any time that is something that like i watch this scene and i'm like it's not that far from the opening of inglorious bastards like I know that's a crazy take, but it's kind of like obviously Inglorious Bastards is much more high tension and higher stakes, but like it doesn't feel all that dissimilar to me. Emily? I'm wrestling think, with that. I'm wrestling I'm, with that. I'm going to disagree. I think. Okay. I just. Yeah. I think that's. I think that's a wild take. Like it's not. <laughs> I get. I get why you're making it, but like, yeah. The 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 yes. The opening. I'm not of, saying like, that Inglourious it's Bastards as is, good. Is, and I'm not, I mean, Glorious Bastards is arguably, no, I know. Yeah, is arguably my favorite Tarantino film. I'm, I'm only, I, the only reason I'm kind of pinpointing it is that his movies do have a tendency to open with a very talky scene that is filled sure, sure, with sure. some sort of a, a, a criminal, you know, tension to it, but is also trying to keep things kind of light and, and winky a little bit too. I think about, you know, fucking um christoph waltz pulling out his pipe in that opening scene this just absurd large pipe like there's just he's doing a lot of balancing of of comedy and and drama in those opening scenes they're kind of showy in a weird way and i kind of see them as similar but it's 
Um, I think that there is a, I, I understand what you're saying, but okay. the opening of Reservoir Dogs, I think is one of his weaker openings because there's not like a lot of, there's not like a, like an arc to it. There's not like a, That's true. That's you know, true. the thing about Inglorious Bastards is like, it's 20, it's a 25 minute short film basically yeah. that, you know, has this incredible tension and this mm -hmm. incredible build and just as like the entire movie in a, in a nutshell. And it just, even the the Tim Roth Amanda Plummer scene in yep. Pulp Fiction, I feel yep. like, has a stronger yeah. sense of like how to tell yep. this story in miniature. Whereas Reservoir Dogs just really, to me, it feels like it's him just getting everything out. It's it's the thing Caroline talked about, where it's like I just got all this shit I got to get out there, and I'm gonna do it right now. And like that that to me is like, like again, I loved it. I I uh, those first thirty minutes especially, and I was like, this is this is a really confident way to start a movie. But when you like think about it it's kind of like three separate scenes that he's like made the single scene and tried to that. give like yeah. tension the the more analogous thing to me I, I think it's what we've discussed and how pulp fiction seems to be riffing yes. on a lot of the same themes of this it it really feels like the car scene in pulp fiction it feels like Travolta jackson they're having a conversation yes. they are making you know there's a couple of little uh references to popular culture in there a thing that tarantino likes to do obviously um he does? Oh, uh, you know, on occasion, actually. He'll like to drop in, like, a little song, like, a pop <laughs> song. Okay. Movie. You cite okay. a source on that, Carson? I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, give me a citation needed. Okay, I'll, I'll publish the work cited at the end of this podcast. You can <laughs> go to my, yeah, my Substack and, and read that. Uh, but, yeah, so it's, like, the, I think, very similarly, and Caroline mentioned this earlier in terms of Reservoir Dogs, like, it, it, it just, the, it makes everything feel very workaday. It makes it feel like, okay, well, these are, not pleasant guys but just a couple of guys having a conversation mm -hmm. they're shooting the shit and then in pulp fiction it is the turn to they pull out their guns knock down the door and you know start shooting in this movie it's the cut to tim ross screaming but it's about like that kind of jarring difference between the two i i think is what mm -hmm. he's really getting at i i agree with that i you know you bring up the you know the scene in the car the opening scene in the car with with Kaitel and roth and i i think we we've we've spoken you know at length to a certain degree on the the brilliance of jumping into this moment and what it gets you how visceral it is but i also think it's worth noting too the i think the heartbeat of this movie is the relationship between kaitel and roth right it's about this oh, yeah. the and the immediacy with which we uh feel sympathy for both of them and you understand their bond immediately um and that that to me is the genius of it because that is what's fueling this entire for, at least for me personally that's yeah. what that's the juice of this entire film is that what he's capturing there the thing i think about what i think about this movie a lot is right at the beginning where um Kaitel is combing his hair Yes. He just takes he out laughs. the comb and yeah. he, he kind of laughs a little. Yeah. yeah. Oh, something about that yeah. really gets me. The idea of like, nah, son, you got to look good. Yeah. Like you got to let me try and get you back together a little bit. Yeah. Mm. It, I think the thing that in Pulp Fiction really feels like it's jumping off of this is that, that I, I don't want to say there's not a sweetness to that relationship, but that the feeling of like a sort of tenderness yes. that neither of them would describe as such that kind of exists between them. like he uh tarantino really pushes that with jules and vincent in um in pulp fiction and like that movie to me works better than this one because while it is about a bunch of pieces of shit it has room within its worldview to be like also like beautiful things exist in this universe 
and they are just not terribly privy to them because of the way they live their lives. There, yeah. There's also something about, and Kaitel says this when he's talking to to Buscemi later, but like Kaitel feels cursed. Um, you know, he he talks a little bit about like none of his jobs have gone well and feeling as though he's under some sort of a cloud and, and that he can't seem to get out from underneath something, um, which I also feel is sort of akin to the way that Tarantino paints crime a little bit. Like it's, it's, it's a job and it's people that are just trying to get by in a lot of ways and that it's not, necessarily malicious in a weird way like yes there are monsters within these universes but for the most part it feels like almost like a punch in punch out kind of job and i do think that that idea of kaitel trying to pull himself out from underneath something um and then the ultimate curse ultimately is is uh is tim roth's character um is their relationship um and how far Kaitel is willing to risk his own life for this man to your point, Emily is, is surprisingly emotional and tender um, in a movie that's pretty rife with shitheads. I just, I just was, I was browsing Quentin Tarantino's filmography and he uh, hosted SNL and the musical guest was smashing pumpkins. And I feel like that is a thing that that was, was, that was, I feel like that is a thing that was done just so when you have a time travel movie and someone goes to 1995, someone can say, Quentin Tarantino's hosting SNL and Smashing Pumpkins is the musical guest. And you're like, oh, it's 1995. The time traveler made it. It happens. It happened. Um, no, but, I, I yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just, I, 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 I do feel like um, it's the spine of the movie. It's the twist of the movie. Um, it's the, it's kind of the whole kit and caboodle for me anyway. And, you know, the, the end of the movie is heartbreaking. Um, and I don't know, there's a lot of people that feel like I read a bunch of takes online of, of how, like, um, why wouldn't Roth just wait? Like, what, why does he tell him? And Tarantino has responded to that in many ways and said, like, you just didn't understand the movie if you think yeah. that that's, you know what I mean? Like, the, the the point of it is because, you know, Tim Roth knows that he has to tell him in this moment, like, that that is, it, it's, it's, he knows what Keitel has done for him, and the least he can do is be honest with him in these final moments, perhaps, together. And, and it, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know, I, I, you guys talking about how Tim Roth is your favorite performance in the film is completely justified because of what it's the hardest role in the movie, right? Like there's, I, I think what he's, he's ultimately got the weight of the film on his shoulders and half of it, he just spends bleeding lying on a, a fucking ramp, but like, it's, it's incredible. I feel like Tim Roth for an actor who is wildly beloved and mm. like, everyone's like, what an actor who I feel like he's underappreciated. I agree. In this weird way. I don't know if y'all saw Resurrection. I know Phil didn't because it's scary. But and I'm uh, a baby. The the movie Resurrection that came out last year, he is just like he is giving a pitch perfect portrayal of an abuser in a way that sort of like reminds you of like how like you can get sucked into the undertow of a person like that. And it just reminded me, fucking Tim Roth is always good. And like we don't we should build a we should build a statue to him. 
and we should just have it like that should be part of this podcast is that we have a Tim sure. Roth statue and then yeah. hopefully nothing bad ever comes out about him because then we'll have a fucking Tim Roth statue. I wouldn't, yeah. be, I wouldn't like, oh. be shocked if something bad came out about Tim Roth, <laughs> but I, I say that, you know, I, Tim Roth is one of those guys. I mean, literally, didn't he have, how long did uh, Lie to Me run for, Emily? I Three was, seasons. Oh, God. Lie to Me. I was, <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, I remember the first time I saw Tim Roth on Lie to Me. Yeah. Uh, He's also. He was good on that show. He was, he was good, good on that on show. show. Did you see he ran for 48 episodes, by the way? Wow. Yeah. I'm looking on IMDb right now. It's, uh, it's, I believe it's three seasons of 16 episodes each because that's all they could get him for. Of course. Um, I, you know, he's, I agree with you, Emily, that he is sort of, um, underrated in a weird way. Um, yeah, he also, I mean, I don't know. There's a part of me that wonders, maybe a difficult guy to, I just, I, he, he's he radiates been, that possibility. He's been married to the same woman since 1993. Oh, nice. He's like, and he endorsed Bernie Sanders. He, sure. He's, he's critical of Donald Trump saying, he should never be forgotten or forgiven for anything he said on the road to the White House. What if Tim Roth is just like a super chill guy? <laughs> it's like yeah, I was going to say, he's about to not still be married to the same woman from 1992 because I'm going to marry <laughs> Tim Roth. Okay. I understand. Great. Yeah. I, I yeah. feel like Tim Roth and Brian Cox might be cut from the same cloth because Brian Cox is also incredibly like a big Bernie supporter and like a yeah. big socialist. Um, but yeah, I... I, I just think um, he's great in this movie. Um, can't really imagine anyone else in it. Uh, I, I, I guess I had a couple things that bumped me logically. Like, I'm not totally sure I understand why Mr. Blonde kidnaps a cop and thinks he can just, like, beat it out of him. Like, again, this is just sort of like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't quite know what that logic is, but... Um... Mr. Blonde is personally defunding the police. This is an, oh, okay. extremely, I understand. <laughs> I understand. an extremely radical movie. Yeah. That's that. That's a bold take. Uh, yeah, the, the, I mean, we've talked about the torture sequence, but it, it should be said. Uh, I guess Tarantino was determined to get stuck in the middle with you. Spent mm. the entire music budget on that one song. Um, was just like it has to be this song. It's great. I don't. I mean, I don't. I, I, don't, I don't. You know, perfect. One might say iconic. One might say that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there's also choices following blonde out of the out of the warehouse to his trunk to get the gasoline coming back in the music not missing a beat is such a great like you know a little bit of a virtuoso kind of auteury thing to do but like um he's great uh you know and when when mr warren shoots him it's a holy shit moment you know it's the, the movie is that is kind of probably the biggest moment of the movie probably I think it's and maybe Emily can speak to that. This having like just seen it for the first time, yes, but please. I think that the twist works so well, and it is like one of the really interesting things about the writing of starting with the cut we've talked about so much now on this podcast. Starting with that cut to, oh my god, this guy sh get got shot. Just in in your brain and in Kaitel's immediately takes him out of the running for the guy who sold them out, and yeah, and then it, to, to the point where like when Mister Blonde walks in, Madsen you know oozing his his just uh his kind of foul vibes and Kaitel being like well this guy's a psychopath you're like yeah i believe him maybe he could be and you're kind of looking at you're looking at buscemi and you're like buscemi seems on the level but maybe not and the entire time you know i'm watching this movie i most of the time i, I you start thinking like oh, it could be any of these guys but 
you know. Well, and yeah. a, a, a very a very smart thing that the movie does is it doesn't reveal until almost the very end who shoots mm -hmm. um, Tim Roth. Yeah. Because, like, obviously you think the entire time, I mean, and again, Emily, as somebody who just saw it, maybe you can correct me if you think that this is off base, but, like, the entire time you watch it, you assume he got shot by a cop in the bank. Yeah. yeah until yeah. it's revealed that, no, they went to jack a car and some lady with, like, a tiny snub in her purse, like like pulled it out and like i to your point carson it's like you do spend the entire movie because it's like he he was shot it couldn't have been him but like then you find that out and like it's it's just it's very good yeah because yeah, Cartel I... says that multiple times it's like it couldn't be him like look at him like yeah. do you think that do you think that if he was if he had set us up do you think he would be like this right now and it's like well yeah yeah it turns yeah, out sure. yeah yeah <laughs> i I mean, the, the twists definitely worked for me. I uh, am an inveterate person who doesn't care about spoilers. So I like immediately went and read the plot summary on Wikipedia as I was watching. So but <laughs> the twists like did work for me. I was like, these are really well built. These are really well established. And I think it is interesting. Pytel is not really the lead of the movie. This movie doesn't have leads, but he was by far the most famous person in it when it was made. He was the guy who got the financing for it. It is fascinating to me that he was like, I want to play the guy that gets duped. I want to play the guy that gets like totally misled and like totally misses the mark and then just kind of dies, you know, because uh, uh, he, he, he didn't read the situation correctly. A lot of, a lot of people wouldn't do that, but like Harvey Keitel is just like, having this all time run in the early nineties where he's just playing all kinds of wild shit. And like, I'm sure that he, he enjoyed getting to play someone who's who gets played. I think he yeah, also, I mean... I'm, I'm sure he loved being a bit of a benefactor for, for filmmakers as well. And, <laughs> and sort of, you know, using his clout to, to get, you know, lesser names made. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, too, I mean, he's probably playing the most human person in the film i would say mm -hmm. um which again maybe some actors would prefer to be more of a memorable or more of like an iconic quote-unquote like thing that um like it might be more fun to you know delve into like being a nice guy eddie or whatever but i mean i definitely can see why as an actor he would read that and that would be the role that sticks out to him because it is the most human and he probably does have if not the most, the second most lines, but yeah. He also has an arc. Uh, you know what I mean? Like a yeah. lot of these guys kind of yeah. don't. Um, so it, it's, it's not, it's not a huge surprise to me that, that he would want to, to play the cursed sort of tragic character that, that, that unfortunately, um, you know, leads to his own demise. I, I also think that, you know, there's, there's a portion of the film here where we then flash back and we're now with Freddie, a.k.a. Mr. Orange, Tim Roth's character, where we get to learn his sort of backstory as to how we got here. Um, on a production level, I love the fact that they turned the uh, upstairs office of this warehouse into his apartment because they were just like, we don't have money to do anything else. But there's a moment in the film where, so we meet this, this sort of... Um, uh, his mentor, I guess, this sort of other undercover cop that's giving him sort of a, a speech to learn, a monologue to learn in order to sort of prove that he, um, to, to prove himself to these criminals to sort of get into their syndicate or whatever, however you want to call it. Um, 
And there's a moment where Freddie is performing this story for Mr. White, Eddie, and Joe. And you're literally like inside a nesting doll of storytelling that's going on, which is really pretty brilliant in the sense that like that that's a pretty crazy thing to have like an hour into your movie, this sort of story within a story within a story. It's, it's pretty incredible. I think one of the things um, that people miss about nonlinear storytelling, particularly on screen, but also in, you know, in, in book form is that the audience needs a structure to track in their sure. brains. It's sure. very hard to do something that has just where stuff just jumps around. That's when people get confused and frustrated and lost. And certainly there are movies that are, are are heightened by being, you know, you being confused and frustrated and lost. And there are movies that are heightened by you being like, I need to sit down and diagram this and figure out what happened. Like there are movies like that's, that, but Inception, the thing, for instance? Yeah. The, it's not that hard. Honestly, 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 can't. honestly, I don't honestly. think, I don't think Inception's hard to understand at I'm all. I'm just throwing I agree one with Emily there. The, the I'm, first just, I'm, I'm always saying this. It's easy. Internet, it's easy. I, I only brought that up because the internet literally made fucking diagrams for Inception. <laughs> That is I was, I was thinking of Primer, and then I didn't want to bring it up because I was because you're all Shane, fucking smarter than I am, all right? Because <laughs> <laughs> Shane Carruth's a piece of shit. But uh, you know that that was the movie yes. I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, the uh, but yeah, I think the thing that is so smart about Tarantino is that his nonlinearity has a structural purpose. You yes. know, Pulp Fiction famously, the structure of that screenplay is about having an epiphany. That, like, it's told out of order so you know that Travolta dies. And, like, but this moment of, like, almost religious or spiritual epiphany, like, comes at the end so that he can structure it as a traditional three-act thing, even though the story is told out of order. And I think Tarantino is so good at that when a lot of people who try to do it uh, just create things that are needlessly confusing. Phil, I'm sorry. I just, I'm sorry I jumped down your throat about Inception. No, no, I, I don't give a shit. Even, I, even in terms of Chris Nolan, I feel like Interstellar's harder to figure out, you know? I don't know. I, and it, yeah, I mean, I think to your, to, to your point, though, you know, there are a lot of filmmakers, and I, I would argue that maybe even Nolan falls into this category sometimes, where it, it becomes more of sort of a tone poem, right? It's more mm-hmm. of a vibe. And, mm-hmm. like, don't, you know, and, and it's almost like you're daring the audience to, like, try to figure it out on some level. I think that I think the fucking primer and, and uh, upstream color both fit into that category of just like, don't even bother. And I think with Tarantino, he's challenging you a little bit, but he still wants you to understand what's going on. He still wants you to have a good time with it. I just want to ask Carson and Caroline how they feel about Tenet, Christopher <laughs> Nolan's 2020 film. That is about how Tenet is what happens when you're just bros and you just know <laughs> when you're bros and you love each other. <laughs> It's just dudes what, being guys, being bros, being you butts. Yeah, love your bros so much a bullet flies backwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's um, basically that movie. <laughs> uh, what, like what do you guys tenet. think of Tenant? I like Tenant. Like oh, oh, I like Tenant a lot. I like Tenant. Yeah. I the point I will say the point to bring it full circle. The point I always make about Tenant when people are like, I don't get it. I'm like. You're not well because people always be like, "Well, I didn't really understand Inception, but I just kind of vibe on it." I'm like, "No, you can understand Inception if you kind of think about it for a sec." And then we'll be uh, like, "Tenant, I'm trying to piece it together," and I'm like, "Don't stop." There's yeah. just a fun. scene. 
at the beginning of the movie where Elizabeth Debicki like basically turns to the audience and says, don't even try. Just stop. I know what you're doing right now. You're about to pause the movie and try and start mapping it. Just don't. Stop it. Well, and I mean, the thing that people consistently forget about Tenet is it's a temporal pincer movement. You know? oh, yes. That's people the thing people always yes. consider. They always um, forget that. Here's yeah. my question for you guys. Do you think that Chris Nolan's interested in time? Like, is that a thing that you think he's interested in? And uh, this is hmm. you. This is like going up there with Quentin Tarantino likes pop culture references. We are <laughs> breaking grounds. Uh, no, okay. Yeah. So my my the bit that I always like to make is Quentin Tarantino or not Quentin, Jesus Christ, Christopher <laughs> Nolan is as uh, interested in time as it is a mechanic of film as Richard Linklater is time as a as a mechanic of the metaphysics of our lives. Yeah. That's my yeah, I think that's, that's true. My bit. I, think I mean that's I think true. it's true, but yeah. yes. I, but. Yeah, I mean listen, I could talk about Richard Linklater all day. But I, I do think that what is interesting though, because I do think weirdly Linklater does kind of kiss up against Tarantino a little bit. Both of these guys are sort of coming out yeah. around the same time. Um they're they're both sort of um American auteurs that uh embrace dialogue. I mean, that's part of the thing that I think is worth noting and kind of worth a little bit of laughing at Ebert's review, where it's just like, you can't say that this is a bad script. Like, it's not a bad script. I, I think that it's it can feel, um, I think it just probably felt weird at the time, right? Like, it's just very talky. And 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 I think that that Ebert saw that through the view of, he doesn't have the money to make a real movie. So everyone's just right. sitting around talking. And I think yeah. that's a, a misnomer. I yeah. Think... I mean, go ahead. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, I think that like, it's one of the things I like about Tarantino generally, but also like this movie and something that I like about even like the opening diner scene is that, you know, there's that old adage in screenwriting um, of like show don't tell. And I think that, he does a really good job of showing via telling, if that makes sense. Like it's, it, he, he has these scenes that are just people yammering on about be it pop culture, be it whatever. And it isn't that like, oh, the information, like it, it feels like, and I could see why it would feel to an Ebert at the time that like, oh, this is, this is telling, not showing. But the information that these guys are, the information these guys are saying is wholly unimportant. And it yeah. is all about like the action of speaking on screen. And like, what does saying these words to this character in this context convey about, you know, the relationship or whatever it is. And so I can see why Ebert would be like, this is a shitty screenplay. Whereas one of the things I'm always so struck by in that opening scene is how he shoot, how kinetically he shoots six people, eight people, whatever it is, sitting around a table where the only person who moves is a guy in his 70s who, like, <laughs> waddles over very slowly to pay the bill halfway through. It's, like, he's the only person who even stands. I also cool. think notoriously table scenes are incredibly hard to shoot. They're hard yeah. to shoot because of angles, and he does a tremendous job. But please, Emily, go ahead. Lawrence Tierney, I almost thought about saying Gabe's the best performance in this movie. I just love his, like, <laughs> I'm here, Man. I've got to pay the bill. Um, I, I, I mean, Ebert famously didn't really get Lynch for a long time. Like, he kind of finally got on his vibe with Straight Story, and then he fucking loved Mulholland Drive. But, like, Ebert would sort of, like, I think Ebert sometimes struggled with, I guess, 
not pastiche, but pastiche with a larger point toward something else, which is kind of what Lynch and Tarantino both make in very different directions. And I think, I think Caroline's point is really apt about how this movie is not about the action or these scenes are not about the actions happening in them or even the dialogue. It is about the purpose of that dialogue and who it's directed at. It is just to, just to bring it full circle back to Tenet, the movie we're discussing today. It's very much just about like (laughs) capturing that vibe about capturing that feel. And I think, I think there's a certain part of your brain that gets, pleasantly my brain at least that gets like pleasantly buzzed when there is a movie that seems to have a plot but is mostly about like capturing a feeling of a certain thing and i think that drives certain people nuts but like i i love that i love that tarantino at his best i think is able to do that i i absolutely agree and i I think that to to piggyback on both your points that you know I don't think Tarantino is actually a particularly plotty filmmaker. No. Um, you know what I mean? I, I think that he he uses, and I don't think it's a crutch, but he uses this fractured narrative to create this propulsion, you know, and I don't want to say a false sense of propulsion, but like a propulsion in terms of like trying to figure out what's going on. And a lot of his movies are crime movies. So like there are stakes involved, but you know, when you look at, and it's why, like, I, I bring up Linklater earlier, but, like, you know, Tarantino has spoken about how much he loves Days to Confused, and I think, I think ultimately Tarantino likes making hangout movies, right? Like, he wants people to sit around and talk because that's what we do for 90% of our lives. It's how we express ourselves, and I think that for, you know, critics to, the, the, I think ultimately the problem is that all the Tarantino copycats that came out after him do all the things that we're talking about in a completely shallow way, the pop culture references, the floor dialogue, all yeah. that kind of shit. As somebody who makes fiction podcasts, I really just want to do a fiction podcast that's just like criminals, like, like they like talk about movies <laughs> and it's, it's literally just like this, sure. but like the overlay is like, well, you're all playing criminals and the rest of the time you're doing crimes, but this is your movie podcast. Sure. where you discuss- when, when you're not in front of a mic, you're performing crimes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's great. I, I mean, truly, I, I just, I think that it's kind of a bit of a, a misnomer in terms of how, I don't want to say misinterpreted Tarantino's movies were, but like there is sort of this, you know, every fucking college kid had a, a Reservoir Dogs or a Pulp Fiction poster on their wall. And and I feel like that's fine and that's cool, but it does feel like a little bit of a misreading. It's like we talked about this, Emily, on, on our 99 podcast, but like Fight Club to me is the is the perfect example of like misinterpretation, mis misappropriation, people sort of taking on a thing and making it think like it's one thing when it's not. Like I actually do think that there's more heart and and more emotion in Tarantino's movies and that it isn't just a bunch of, you know, you know, dick wagging and pulling out guns and shit like that, but that's how a large part of his fan base I think interprets his movies. I think I think though after this movie Tarantino yeah. gets really good at marrying iconography yes. to characters that perfectly represent that iconography. I think the bride in Kill Bill is like the perfect example sure. of this is a character who you look at her and you immediately understand who she is. And she's mm-hmm. so cool, but that coolness is intimately tied to the kind of character she is. Mm-hmm. So even if you only appreciate her on that level of iconography, you are still kind of appreciating the whole, 
in Reservoir Dogs, it's a bunch of shitty people who look super cool. And if you're just like tapped into the iconography, then you can miss that really easily. And I think he gets so much better. I think he might be the best at it. Talking myself into liking Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) That's what we're doing here. But I do think, I mean, to to sort of come full circle a little bit as as we sort of wrap this up, but I do think that, you know, we talked at the beginning about sort of the masculine energy of this movie. And I think that unfortunately it was kind of misinterpreted and kind of digested by a certain subsect of people that ultimately could continue to like his movies. But I do think that Tarantino smartly, to your point, Emily, evolves enough that he's able to kind of, you know, play with it a little bit more, fill it out, make the characters. I mean, ultimately Reservoir Dogs is just not the the actual criminals themselves. It's just the range that exists there is relatively narrow. Like I don't, I don't think it's as as complex as as his cast ultimately. Think. I thought you were going to say the Reservoir Dogs are the friends we made along the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously that's the that's the pull quote from this episode. Um, but yeah, I, I so at the uh, at the end of our episodes, we uh, we rate the movie. We rate the movie uh, from zero to ninety nine. Um, when we originally saw it before this podcast and after this podcast so we can see whether or not the podcast changed our opinions on the film in any way shape or form i'll go first while you guys ruminate on what i just said to you guys um i didn't see this in 92 but i probably saw it a a year or so later so i'm gonna say back in the early 90s when i saw this i probably would have given it like a 68 I, i i liked it fine but it didn't knock my socks off and and i would argue never really went back to it i watched it again about a year or so ago, and then I watched it obviously yesterday. Um, I come into, I came into this podcast at a seventy-five, um, and I'm going to leave it an eighty. I think it's, I think it's a good movie. Um, I still don't think it would make my top five Tarantino films. Um, what but are those top five? I mean, probably I Inglorious, then Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Once Upon a Time, and then Kill Bill probably one or two one i I mean i I like two um i I mean but i i I don't know that 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 was just off the dome but like i i liked this movie um it's gotten better for me this conversation made it even better and i do think that it's a movie that like its esteem grows but it grows because of using it as sort of like a skeleton key with which to watch his other movies if that makes sense yeah but um what about you emily where are you at so I saw this for the first time last night. I don't know if I made that clear. I came in probably 78. I was like, I really, I really liked this. It got a little long in the tooth for me. Like there's, there's it's just a little, just missing a little something. Talking about it though, brought me up to an 82, I think. Like I, I did, I do really, I did really like this conversation. Queer phobia scale, I'm going to give it a six, six yeah. out of 10. But like in terms, it's kind of the same thing. It's lower instinct. than I thought. It's kind of the same thing as Basic Instinct, where I feel like it's like fucking it's it's got a it's got a reason that it's doing all of this. So yeah. I'm like kind of enthusiastic about the fact that like all these people are huge, humongous, homophobic pieces of shit. I'm like, yes, please give me more of that. Uh, I'm gonna I'm just gonna do my top five Tarantinos. Yeah, please, not. please go. go. Uh, I think Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, um, Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill Two, mm. Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight is a movie I Hateful Eight is a movie I hated when it came out, yeah. and I've rewatched it a couple times. I think it's it's kind of a it's kind of the one movie that got Trump before Trump. It's kind of the one. Interesting. 
That's an interesting, interesting. take. Now I got to rewatch Hateful Eight. Have, yeah, I haven't seen that one since theaters, and I hated it. Yeah, I, I hated it the, too. I'm, yeah. I have a very brief Hateful Eight story to tell. I went to see it in LA. Um, they did a, a, an early screening at the DGA um, in '70 with the fucking intermission and the whole whatever. And so I go to see this movie. Um, and with these screenings, you know, they're obviously packed lights come down and there's a couple seats left and there's a seat right in front of me next to somebody. So the usher walks somebody up to this person and says, can this person sit down next to you? She looks up at the person who is Justin Timberlake and says, no, my friend is coming. I love the fact that she literally was like, no, (laughs) Justin Timberlake cannot sit next to me and watch the hateful eight like, did you did you get to sit person. next to justin timberlake then did you were you like no justin you can sit right here <laughs> no i did not have a seat next to me but i was just like that's fucking that's a that's awesome i we gotta get justin on the pod we gotta yeah, get justin, we'll get on, justin the pod. on the pod yeah. uh carolyn what, what where are you on the on the uh, zero to 99 scale on reservoir dogs so i will say um hmm. completely uncritically uh when i first saw this film it was absolutely a 99 when i first saw it um all right in terms of in terms of walking into this rewatch before this podcast i would just like to read a very brief exchange from my (laughs) in-person text messages this afternoon he says i think it gets a half star downgrade from me because i'm at an age where i notice all the adr and awkward cuts but i uh, uh but dear god every frame's dripping with tarantino's sheer will to make a movie i said bad take this watch puts it six stars for me, actually. And then later he says, later he says, um, God, where it, where was it? Uh, yeah. Um, okay. I think you might be right. That's actually going up. I forgot how good the back half of this film is. And I said, yes, the first half is five stars. The second half is seven stars. Ergo, the uh, average of the film leaves at six stars. So uh-huh. I would put it at, oh God, I don't know. Is that like 120 out of 99 <laughs> before coming into this podcast? Does the math work? Wow. I, I, wow. Will say, I will say actually sitting down and like rewatching it again for the first time. Oh God, probably, probably close to seven years probably the first time or the time that Carson saw it in college mm-hmm. when he first reevaluated it it's probably the last time I saw it um I've, I still gotta go like I think I'm only down to like a 90 because like <laughs> this thing wow rips. this thing yeah. really rips for me and it and it is just that thing like I mentioned it's yes it's debut album syndrome but I'm always a sucker for debut albums and I love that it just it just opens up like a fire hose. It just like it just like hits you in the fucking face in a you, way that I find to be wonderful. You make me want to love this movie more. I know. Enthusiasm. Same. Well, the same there's way. a way we can fix that. We can fix that. We can. <laughs> you a can Carson, simply what love about the you? movie. That is how that text conversation ended, by the way, with Caroline just being like, "No, we can make you like the movie more. Just like it more." <laughs> You can, um, it's it's a thing that the internet needs to be reminded of is you can choose to like and not to like things that's true that's true true it's true it's not impossible um for me first time i saw it talked about this earlier i was in high school i was dumb i saw it and i said not as good as pulp fiction probably a 60 sure. before this podcast it's probably sitting around an an 80 Maybe okay. 79, maybe just below. And I will say, as with many conversations about good movies, as do after this, I'm like maybe up to like 83, 84, probably. Okay. Definitely enjoy more. Been a good combo. And then, Caroline, you got to do this. 
top five Tarantinos. Yeah. Oh, yes. Django Unchained, so, number that's one. Your number one? That's my number wow. one. I love Django wow. Unchained. I mean, it's also partially because I saw it in high school, it blew my mind, and it's like sure. never. Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill Volume 2, Inglorious Bastards, Once Upon a Time. Those are my five. Carolyn? Gotcha. Um, so if we, if we, if you can grant me the concession that Kill Bill is one, sure. is one film in two volumes, um, then only for you, you're the only, only person. Yeah. Only for you. The rest Wonderful. of us had to choose one of the two, but you get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if it's it. not, if I have to choose one, it's just two is five and one is four. But if I hmm. can say that they are both one okay. film, then it goes in descending order. Sure. It's Django is at five. Yeah. Kill Bill is at mm-hmm. four. Jackie Brown is at number three. Uh-huh. Number two is Inglorious Bastards. Oh my god. <laughs> and number one is Reservoir Dogs. A masterpiece. Wow. You a might masterpiece. be Reservoir Dogs' biggest fan. Is it possible? I literally might Reservoir be. Reservoir Dogs and Return of the Jedi. Was. Those are your two. Wow. Reservoir Hot Dogs, takes. Return of the Jedi, and Return of the King. I get that they are messy and bloated and insane and ridiculous films, and I kind of love that about them. I, will, I like I will excess. Say- I will say this for Return of the King. I had remembered that movie is like, I don't know. I rewatched all of them when my baby was brand new. Sure. Return of the King's fucking great. Like, I they're had, all great. They're all great. Yeah, they're all great. But like, I had remembered Return of the King as its flaws, and those flaws exist, but like, there's so much other good shit oh, in that totally, movie. Oh, totally. Totally. Well, do you want to? I, um, oh. I want to get your thoughts, Carolyn and Carson, on the film that we're covering next week, a film that oh. I'm curious as to whether or not you guys have seen. Uh, next week, we have Ashley Lyle, uh, co-creator and showrunner of Yellow Jackets, coming on to talk about Ron Howard's Far and Away. Is this a movie that either of you have seen? Do you have thoughts on Far and Away? It is I... not a film that I have seen. No. Oh, wow. Wait, it's a Tom Cruise, Nicole Tom Kidman? Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman movie. Ooh, maybe I it's... should see Far and I gotta, Away. I got to say this. It's, mm. It is. My wife and I finished that movie, and she was like, that was such a bad movie, but wasn't it great? And I was like, yes. Like it is. That's the it does, perfect way of summarizing. It does everything you don't want a movie to do perfectly. Yep. Like I can't it, even explain it. it I is, loved it. It's it's a a big, super seventy millimeter, like Ron Howard going big about the Oklahoma land rush. You've got Tom and Nicole rocking maybe some of the worst irish accents you're gonna see on film and yet it fucking works man like it it just it, it is and i said this on the episode you know forgive me but like they kind of just don't really make movies like this anymore just big movie star movies and ron howard who finds this really weird tone in a good way of being like playful and fun and popcorn and as as emily said you're watching you're like this movie's dumb but i love it it is. It is. This is to spoil one of my takes from next week. Sure. It's 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 fanfic about Ron Howard's grandparents. He's writing really fanfic about his great grandparents. <laughs> That's literally what it is. Really um, incredible. I want to. Wow. I want to ask you two about a different movie hmm. uh, that maybe you've seen or haven't. Hmm. Have you seen Damien Chazelle's 2022 film Babylon? Damn it. I, I I I have. She I has. I have not yet. Babylon. Caroline, will you just will you give me a sense of your overall take on on Babylon? Um, I did not like it very much. This podcast is <laughs> over. <laughs> Can I just say, um, you know, Emily hasn't been doing this as much lately, and it does it breaks my heart that Emily. It's because it's because none of the guests have seen the movie. <laughs> 
which should say something. Um, yeah. But it, it is um, the reason that Emily is bringing it up is because there is this thread in our far and away episode where Emily tries to merge these two books <laughs> together and is determined to make far and away Ron Howard's Babylon. <laughs> I, I fucking adore Babylon. I cannot say enough good things about it. Like I, yeah, I watched it the first time and I was like, I think I really like that. I texted Phil a bunch of stuff about it and then I like couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I went and saw it again in 70 millimeters. And I was like, no, this is a masterpiece. This is perfect. I know, like right now it's number four on my list from last year. I know that wow. like, when it, when we get to the year 20, like 2029, December 31st, 2029, I'm going to post my top 50 of the decade or whatever. And it's going to be, it's going to be in the top 10. I know myself. I know what I'm going to do to myself. Wow. I'm just going to keep it. Like, what I do Libby's love that take movie. on Babylon. She's never watched it. She's like, right. you're too, she, what she says to me is you were so weird about that movie. So, like, that's her take on Guess what? One. She's right. <laughs> I have to I, say, Emily, I am, like, genuinely very happy for you. Um, as am I. Like, she just opened the door to this office and glared at me. <laughs> <laughs> Continue, Caroline. No, just, like, I mean, I, so many of, like, the critics and podcasters and folks that I follow, who I, <laughs> whose opinions I love and respect have Same. all been like babylon fucks yeah. so hard yeah, I know. and i saw it in the cinema mm-hmm. and i just very much did not enjoy the experience of watching that that also- is that is a movie that will throw you out of it in the first five minutes and if you don't get back in like you're fucked like that you're just sitting there for three hours watching a movie that you feel actively repelled by fortunately well, i'm gonna say yeah. two things first of all i couldn't agree with you more Caroline, in the sense that there are lots of film critics, Emily obviously being one of them, that I respect and adore, that love this movie. Um, And I will probably give it another shot one of these days. I did not hate it, just to be clear. Like, I I, I kind of, you know, I'm not a bodily functions person, so the first 20 minutes of the movie is a lot of shit and piss, and you're just like, okay, are you just daring me to stick with this i'm just i'm just realizing i watched this movie holding my baby and i have become a bodily functions person because of said well, baby maybe, maybe that's what so you mean. yeah maybe, maybe i was just what, like yeah. this baby's gonna poop on me during this movie i just know it and i'm okay with that so, so i just that was that was a hurdle i had to get over and there's a lot of stuff in the movie i liked i, I genuinely did not hate the movie i don't ever think that i'm going to get to the place that emily would like me to be which is fully babylon pilled <laughs> but i do think that there is some stuff that's worthwhile about it but to your point caroline i found it just kind of exhausting like by the end of it i was just like kind of enough i'm just i'm i'm i sort of like how you felt about stay tuned emily i felt that way about uh about babylon you know as the person on this podcast who's not yet seen babylon i have a question which is Mm -hmm. is damien chazelle ever going to make a movie about how it's really difficult to be an artist and how the business of making art is toxic and bad Oh. No, that's no? crazy. Okay, that's crazy. yeah, no, that'd be weird. That'd be a weird thing. It'd be for weird. To do. Yeah. All of his weird, movies, but... all of his movies are about astronauts, as we know. <laughs> I, you know, listen, I, I don't, I actually really don't hate Damien Chazelle. I, I don't love him either. I mean, I, I, I really kind of, I don't want to say I'm ambivalent because I think there's good stuff in all of his movies, but I am sort of like, I don't know why we care that much about this. I guy yeah i have the exact opposite arc of everyone where i was like 
I just I didn't like Whiplash very much. I liked La La Land, but like I think he's just getting better, and everyone else is like he's just getting worse. But I have become a little obsessed with him because I really like his wife's Instagram. So, uh, oh, I and I feel like her. she, I feel like she should be my friend. I feel like if I really tried, yeah. I could be yeah. Damien Chazelle's wife's friend. If you're listening, let's be friends. Come on the Beethoven app. <laughs> I love that you are determined to get someone on for Beethoven. That's I want to get a name for Beethoven. I do too. I want to get a why. name. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, guys, Carson, Carolyn, where can people find you? Where can they listen to your podcast? How can people follow you? uh stalk you what have you this is terrifying because our producer usually does this at the end of our episodes <laughs> <laughs> okay so start with what's your name and what's then your name we'll go and where are yeah. your handles Chris, you go, go first it. i'll go for, okay <laughs> Uh, well, our, our podcast is called How Have You Not Seen? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like this podcast, you might like it as well. We're on, uh, you can just search How Have You Not Seen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, we're probably going to be on there. Uh, we are on Instagram at How Have You Not Seen Pod? Yeah. H-H-Y-N-S. H-Y-N-S. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm terrible. Uh, <laughs> same thing for Twitter. Uh, I believe we have a Facebook. Do we have a Facebook page? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I have. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> we're know, everywhere. What, we're what's everywhere. Your, what's your What's your truth social? <laughs> oh, that's now that that's is a good, good question. question. Uh, well, it's H H Y N S Q Anon. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you get your social media at H H Y N S Pod. And then Carson is like a very smart, beautiful self care boy. Is not on Twitter. Smart hopped off. Yeah, I'm at Instagram at Carson L Betts though. If you want to see some photos of me, maybe you know. Do you also post photos of Damien Chazelle sometimes? Because that's my content. I do, but it's always like the sixth in the slideshow. You got to really like keep going on to see Damien. Yeah. And then Uh, Caroline, where can they find you? Yeah. The only social I will pitch um, other than our podcast at HHYNS pod on Twitter is um, you can find me on Twitter. And this is the thing is the bit works in writing, but it's so hard to say. Uh, I'm at Scareline. So the word scare S-C-A-R-E underscore O-line, O-L-I-N-E. So at Scareline on uh, on Twitter. But if you just go to the podcast page, you can find me from there. Fantastic. Um, this you was got, amazing. Listen, folks, you got you got to listen to the show. It's it's one of my one of my faves. I'm glad we got to have you two on. And I will come back and talk about some other thing I haven't seen. So it'll yes. be great. Yes. Thank you. You so are much. obviously both invited on the show, oh, yeah. um, Emily. I feel like we got to get you on for a Christmas film. Um, we're about to start. <sighs> is there a Christmas film Emily hasn't seen? Is the question. Well, she can. So the thing about our show, is yeah, it goes guess, both ways. Also, allow them to bring us a film. Oh, that's interesting. If they would like, so okay, because yeah. every week Carson and I, we just flip, we just flip back and forth. I make mm-hmm. him watch a film he hasn't seen. He makes me watch a film I haven't seen. Okay. So we can so guests can make us watch them oh that's interesting didn't i pitch you on a super obscure christmas movie and then you were like i can't find this anywhere (laughs) it's like muppets christmas carol and then something else no that's not obscure well it was was the holly and the ivy i think which is Mm. one of my favorite movies you should go on for um fred claus or four christmases oh oh i mean i love fred claus love fred claus (laughs) I mean, I don't actually serious? love it. I don't actually love it, but like that movie is is cursed in a fun way. So. <laughs> it's a movie about how Santa's got a brother whose name is Fred. Which is yes, a, and it a opens. Great pitch. 
it opens with like just like the biggest Santa Santa info dump myth mythological thing you've ever seen. Yeah, so. sounds great. What's yeah. not to love? Um, or Noel? You ever seen Noel? Did you see that yeah, one, Emily? I did. I saw it's Noel. Cute. It's fine, actually, 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 actually. Uh, when that's my catchphrase, apparently. When I was uh, when I was starting transition, a friend of mine was like, "What's your what's your what's your um, what's your vibe? Like, what's your yeah. fashion template?" And I kind of think it's Anna Kendrick and Noel. <laughs> I kind of think that's what I'm going for. It's kind uh, of adorable, though. I mean, it's it's a good vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, guys. Uh, this was fantastic. Uh, to our listeners next week uh far and away uh get on your get your horses and your curly hair ready kind of rips kind of rips. rips there's at least 20 minutes on nicole kidman's hair nicole kidman's hair is so good so it's good. so good i mean it, it's kind of worth the price of admission but um thank you guys so much for coming on this was amazing yeah thank you so so much for thank having you. us of course of course we'll talk to you soon bye 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 Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.